I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. I call your attention to the outline of my message on the back of your bulletin that has some spaces for you to fill in so that next week you can be co-preachers with me. And I'm going to ask the Lord to drop a bonus blessing on anybody who shares even a portion of that message with somebody this week. The scripture for the morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, uh, just two verses beginning with verse 19. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> One day a father was leaving the house to go to a shopping center. And his little three-year-old daughter said, Daddy, bring me something. And he said, honey, what do you want? She pondered that for a few moments. And then she said, bring me something that will last forever. Even at the tender age of three, she recognized that some gifts, including many Christmas presents, have an initial appeal, but the appeal passes pretty quickly. She was asking for something with staying power. And don't we all want that? Jesus' words in our text that I just read to you about are about investments, good ones and bad ones, those that last and those that pass. And that reminds me of a story uh, about a city lawyer who wanted to buy a, a saddle horse from a farmer. And the farmer said to him, I'll sell you that saddle horse if you can catch him. So one afternoon, the lawyer and his two adult sons went into the pasture, and after three hours of hard work, they managed to corral the horse and put a bridle on him. And then the farmer, who was meticulously honest, said uh, to the lawyer, now, I can't take your money for this horse until, you, until I tell you two things about him. First, he's real hard to catch. And second... He ain't worth a hoot after you catch him. <laughs> what a definition of bad investments. So many people in this world chase a lot of things, and when they get them, they're not worth a hoot. Jesus warns us that all earthly investments are temporary and transient. None has eternal value. And so Jesus' advice was, Invest in something that lasts. 
Now, the top investment in our lives is what we call our treasure. And so a question that I will ask us all this morning is, where is our treasure stashed? In Jesus' day, as you know, the wealth of many prosperous farmers was in barns. Uh, whether it was consisted of grain or other produce. And of course, in barns, mice and other vermin could eat away at that wealth. Jesus said there are also other ways that you can lose your wealth. Jesus noted that there are thieves around. There were thieves in the first century, still are. Thieves can steal what you got, and if there had been a stock market in Jesus' day, he would have probably listed it as another way by which your wealth can vanish. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Jesus was not against earning a profit. The Bible is a free enterprise book. St. Paul sent word to the Christians in, in the city of Thessalonica, and he said, if you got anybody there who won't work, then he shouldn't eat. And then remember that Jesus labored in a carpenter shop for money. It was a profit-making enterprise. St. Paul produced tents for money. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. When a rich man named Nicodemus came to talk to Jesus one night, Jesus didn't say to him, now, Nicodemus, get rid of all the stuff you, you, you control. No. He did tell Nicodemus, you must be born again. But you see, the Lord wants us to have sufficient resources to meet our needs and to do some good, to look out for others. Most of us understand what the great boxer Joe Lewis meant when he said, I really don't like money very much, but it quiets my nerves. <laughs> the problem with money is that it has a greater chance than anything else on earth of slipping its tentacles around our hearts and replacing Jesus Christ on the throne of our lives. Money is the most seductive false god in America. The late great bishop Ernest Fitzgerald told a story about himself that illustrates the powerful attraction of things. When Ernest graduated from college, the very next day, he bought a brand new car. Now, he had three years of seminary ahead of him, and he wasn't sure how he was going to finance them, but this was some magnificent car. I mean, it had four gears in the floor. It had a twin-barrel carburetor. It had chrome in all the right places. This was some magnificent car. He took it to show it to his father, and his father said, Ernest, uh, how many payments you got to make on that car? And Ernest told him. He said, uh, Ernest, have you found a job yet? And Ernest said, no, sir, not yet. And then with quiet wisdom, his father said, Ernest, you don't own that car. That car owns you. And exactly the same thing applies to people who've got five credit cards and pay the minimum balance every month on all five. You don't own those cards. They own you. Jesus urged us to invest in heavenly assets. What does that mean? Well, heavenly investors have three things in common. First, their eternal security is in Jesus Christ. They know that they are temporary residents here on earth. Their real home is in heaven. 
They believed Jesus when he said, in my Father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, you know if, if you're going to spend a week at the beach, you don't wait until one day before you leave to call a motel or hotel and make reservations. No. And nobody with good sense waits until the last moment to make reservations for eternity. And when I think about heavenly investments, right away I think about my mother and father. Papa was a Methodist preacher. Mama was a school teacher. And when they died, they didn't leave uh, us four children much money, but they gave us a lot more valuable things. They gave us all the education we would take. They taught us that a principle is more important than a prophet, that a good name is more valuable than gold or silver. And most importantly, they taught us how to put our elbows on the windowsills of heaven and gaze into the face of a loving God. They taught us to be heavenly investors. All of us on this earth are transients. Some are here wonderfully, it's a wonderful fact, for a hundred years or more. More and more are living that long. Most are here from what, 60 to 85? Sadly, some are here less than 40 or 30 or 20 years. Sadly, some are here less than a year. And tragically, some are here only for a couple of months in the mother's womb. This life, regardless of its length, is the prelude to the main event. This does not mean that this life is unimportant. It just means that the single most important thing you can do in this life is to make reservations for eternity. And how do you do that? Oh, it's as simple as one, two, three. First, confess that you're a sinner who deserves God's judgment. Two, believe that when Jesus died on that cross, he paid the penalty for your sin. And third, invite the living Christ Spirit to be the supreme ruler in your life. Now, the moment you take those three steps, one, two, three, your eternal reservations are guaranteed and secure. Here's the second characteristic of heavenly investors. They see their possessions as loans, not possessions, loans. Now, that is not the world's attitude. That's not the American way. Let me tell you the way Americans think. Everything I've got is my stuff. I earned it. And therefore, nobody else can tell me what to do with it. That's American. The Bible disagrees. It's not the only thing the Bible disagrees with Americans about, but that's one of them. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, we read, this could be addressed to 21st century just as, as well as it was back in biblical times. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Now, this means we own nothing. All we have is a temporary lease on a lot of material assets. 
and the permanent owner is God Almighty, and one day we're going to have to give him an accounting of how we have managed his stuff. Just imagine father, mother, and teenage son Walter, they go for lunch at Chick-fil-A. And mom and dad are on a diet, so Walter's the only one who orders French fries. They sit down at the table, have a blessing, and after they begin to eat a little while, dad reaches over and takes a few of those French fries. And Walter says, no, daddy, those are mine. Now, you know how absurd that is, what he just said. Walter didn't pay for that meal, but they're mine. Well, we sound like Walter. We sound like him when we talk about my stuff, my possessions, when all we have are loans from a benevolent God. Even our next breath is sheer gift. And we're going to leave this world with the same number of assets with which we came into it. Zero. John D. Rockefeller died in 1937 at the age of 97. He became the world's first billionaire in 1916. And the amount of money he had at that time in our money's equivalency would be about $30 billion. And so, as you can imagine, the reading of his last will and testament was of great interest to many, including a particular nephew who really hoped that his name would be mentioned in the will and that he would be receiving a great gift. Large number of people came to this courthouse for the reading of the will. And as that nephew entered the courthouse, he happened to encounter Mr. Rockefeller's longtime accountant, and he slipped up to him and whispered, said, uh, Sir, how much did the old man leave? And the accountant replied, All of it. All of it. <laughs> we heavenly investors should remember that we won't take to heaven even the clothes we're buried in. How much of our stuff are we going to leave here? All of it. All of it. The Bible tells us there was only one person that God called a fool. He was a rich farmer, and I know he was a successful farmer. The Bible tells us that. I mean, this was a hard-working guy, and he was smart. He knew what to plant, when to plant it, when to harvest it, because his crops were bountiful. He filled up his barns, still was producing more. So he tore down those barns, built burger barns, filled them up. And then he said to himself, now you've got it made. It's time to eat, drink, and be merry. And if that man had been living today, he would have said, ah, it's time to wine, dine, shine, and recline. <laughs> and if he had been living in a cold climate, he would have said, it's time to move to the Sun Belt and to play golf and kick back and relax. And that man in Jesus' story was probably much respected and admired by the community. I imagine his funeral was a really first-class affair. I imagine that preacher got up and mentioned 10 or 15 great things he had done as a successful farmer and entrepreneur. But God called him a fool. He said to him, tonight you're going to die, and who's going to get all your stuff? Why did God call that man a fool? Because he was 
rich toward himself, storing up a lot of stuff, but he was not rich toward God. He was a lousy investor. Notice that Jesus posed this question to the rich man. Who's going to get all your stuff after you're gone? And by the way, this is a question that every Christian should ponder and answer. And in order to answer that question, every adult Christian ought to have a last will and testament. Because if you don't, the state will determine what happens to all the stuff you've been able to manage. And you may not approve of the state's uh, dispersal of those resources. Every adult Christian ought to have a last will and testament. And the preamble to that document ought to include at least one sentence in which you declare that Jesus Christ has been your Savior and Lord. What an inspiration that'll be to your family. That'll be your last chance to witness for Christ here on earth. It'll happen after you die. When the people who encounter your last will and testament will read that preamble and then surely there ought to be some provision in your will for some gift to God's kingdom. Because after you've been in heaven a, a hundred years, you know it'll bring you joy to know that some of the resources that God let me manage on earth are still working for his kingdom down there. That's got to be a joy. Your last will and testament will be your last chance to make a heavenly investment. Remembering that all of your so-called possessions here are loans. And then here is the third characteristic of heavenly investors. Their focus is on others. Jesus told us the very best way we could show that we love him is by extending that love to others. Jesus said, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers or sisters, you did it for me. Some of you who are older than most of you may remember a little brown Cokesbury hymnal that I grew up with. It includes a hymn entitled Others. That hymn is not in our Methodist hymnal, but is in that little brown Cokesbury hymnal. I probably cut my teeth on that hymnal. And the chorus of that hymn says this, Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Recently, the Wall Street Journal presented an editorial about Dr. Charles Kemper, now 98 years old, living in northern Wisconsin. He served as a country doctor in a small town for over 40 years. Making house calls was routine for Dr. Kemper. He said that if I got a call at 3 a.m., I didn't have to ask if it was an emergency. And I could be out of my house in 10 minutes. And today that man can hardly walk down the street without somebody stopping him to thank him for delivering their babies or curing their pneumonia. A reporter asked Dr. Kemper, why did you spend all those years driving to the homes of ailing people in terrible weather when you could have gone to the large urban areas, worked a lot fewer hours, and made a whole lot more money? And Dr. Kemper said, that's why God put a country doctor on earth for others, especially the least, the lost, the lonely, and the hurting. The late great Bishop Ernest Fitzgerald, near the end of his life, 
said this, the only real and abiding satisfactions I have had are those gained from using what I had to enrich the lives of others. Isn't it true? Check with me now on, isn't this a, a heavenly mystery that I'm going to declare? It, it's a mystery. I don't claim to explain it. I'm in sales, not management. But, but here's a mystery. The people who give themselves most liberally to others are the happiest people on the face of the earth. Conversely, those who selfishly hoard their time, their energy, their money are the most miserable people on the face of the earth. The great Shakespeare offered a rather cynical view of human nature when he wrote in his uh, famous play, Julius Caesar, these words, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is often teared with their bones. That may be sometimes true here on earth, but it's not true of eternity. The only things that will accompany us to heaven will be the kind things we have done for others. How do I know this? It's in the Bible. That's how I know. In Revelation 14, I read this. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, for their deeds will follow them. End of quote. Now, none of our good deeds can purchase our salvation. That premium was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. But every kindness we show for other people, especially for the least, the lost, the lonely, and the hurting, will be celebrated in heaven. Since I mentioned Chick-fil-A earlier, let me close with a word about the founder, Truett Cathy. Mr. Cathy died in 2014 at the age of 93. He was a Christian who gave at least 10% of his earnings to the Lord. As you know, he closed all his restaurants on Sundays. Hey, by the way, they still close on Sundays. And back in 1999, the business experts told Mr. Cathy, you are committing business suicide by closing those restaurants on Sunday. You're sacrificing 15 to 20 percent of your sales. And Mr. Cathy just smiled and replied, you know, we generate more in six days than our competitors do in seven. And at that time, some 820 Chick-fil-A restaurants were bringing in $1 billion a year with a growth rate of 18% a year when the rest of the fast food industry averaged about 5% growth. Also, Chick-fil-A had and still has, I'm told, one of the lowest employee turnover rates in the entire fast food industry. Truett Cathy was a heavenly investor who believed that God blesses those who honor him. So I'm asking today, what shape are your investments in? And you know I'm not asking you, are you balanced between stocks and bonds? And I'm not asking, uh, are you balanced between savings and debt? No. I'm asking about eternal investments. Since this life is just a prelude to the main event. Are your heavenly investments in good order? Here again, 
the words of Jesus with which I began. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.